You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Today is a dream come true for Chris and I. On this podcast, we'll be talking with wildlife conservation and TV host, the one and only Jeff Corwin. As a trained biologist and wildlife conservationist, Jeff has traveled the world and hosted several famous wildlife shows over the years to include Going Wild with Jeff Corwin on Disney, the Jeff Corwin Experience on Animal Planet, and one of my personal favorites, ABC's Ocean Mysteries and Ocean Treks. So we're so excited to have Jeff here today and learn more about how his curiosity, hard work, and love for nature and animals has helped shape his incredible career. And today we'll be discussing with Jeff a new series he is hosting called Wildlife Nation on ABC. It's a series that focuses on wildlife conservation in North America, and it airs every weekend and is currently the number one spot in its time block. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being here today. Hello. I'm delighted to be with you guys. Oh, yeah. No, this is this was amazing to be able to... to I know you have a really, really busy schedule. And for you to be able to uh, carve some time out for us and, and all of our listeners around the world... Uh, Jeff, just to start off, I mean, this is this was the one question I just really wanted to ask you a lot. Because, you know, watching you over the years, you know, inspiring me inspiring all the children, the younger generation, you know, about animals and animal conservation. What's the Jeff Corwin origin story? When did all of this start for you when you were like, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my life? Well, Chris, uh, it's, it began when I was about six years old. Uh, I, uh, you know, my dad was not David Attenborough and my mom wasn't Jane Goodall. Mm -hmm. Um, although I'm lucky to say today I've had, I've had a chance to work with both of those icons, but my dad was a Boston cop and my mom was a nurse and we lived in an urban environment. And the only time we ever saw wildlife is when we visited relatives that lived in places like that. And when I was six years old in my grandparents' backyard, uh, I found a, a garter snake and that was kind of like my gateway nature drug that got me into science and nature. That was the lightning bolt that really inspired me and, and, and ignited my passion for nature. 
Did you get that? I did, I did. I did. Yes. Angie, yes. Angie, Sorry. I'm yeah. having a fangirl moment. So you'll have to, you'll have to. <laughs> I mean, I could expand more, but it's, I think that's kind of how it all began. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it, it all began with finding that snake. And the day I found that snake, this garter snake as a six year old kid living in Quincy, Massachusetts, that was the day that I knew I would work with animals for the rest of my life. That was the day I became a naturalist. And if mm-hmm. you know anything about snakes, they're the ultimate creature of habit. So I was able to study and observe this snake until I was eight years old. And then when I was eight, the neighbor to my grandparents had decapitated that snake right in front mm-hmm. of me while I was watching it. And that was the day I, I became a conservationist. I realized that good people make bad decisions when they lack information. And it was a very unconventional journey. I spent a lot of my youth in the woods, like most naturalists, but I became very active in in wildlife rehabilitation with the local vet who was doing this, took me under his wing when I was a preteen. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was spending a lot of my life in rainforest in Central America. And my focus up until graduate school was on rainforest. I created an NGO that focused on conserving rainforest right about that time when rainforests were on the forefront and the, and the mid to late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. And, and that drove me to have these kind of really awesome, wild adventures. And that started to get featured in media. And I was kind of grappling with graduate school, knowing I wanted to go to graduate school, but realizing I didn't want to be a long-term researcher, that I was a generalist, that I was a naturalist. Mm-hmm that I wasn't a specialist, that I was an educator, yet I did not want to follow that traditional path into nature, wildlife education. So I got featured in a a National Geographic sponsored documentary Mm -hmm. back in 1994. And the host was Dr. Robert Ballard, who became a friend who was the one who discovered the Titanic. Yes. (laughs) And and he took a, a shining to me and And it was from that experience that I thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. I want to work with media. I want to work with television. This was long before internet and cell phones. And and I came up with this idea and it took me three or four years to pitch it. Finally, Mm -hmm. Disney liked it. And that became my first series, which was Going Wild on Disney Channel. And that's when Disney Channel had reinvented itself. It went from Mm -hmm. cartoons and, Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff to the Disney Club to like being in a network where they launched pop stars and then they wanted this kind of edgy current nature show. And that was my series going wild. That would have been 1996 or 97, somewhere around then. I mean, Jeff, your career is just so amazing and what you've done and what you've covered and where you've traveled over the past 20 years. So as a naturalist and of course an animal lover, what are some of your favorite species to work with and why? And secondly, what are some of your favorite natural places to be in? So there, there are so many cool critters that I've had a chance to work with over the years. And, and a lot of them are, are steeped in really distinctive memories. And I think working with polar bears, with like the world's number one polar bear conservation mm-hmm. biologist in the Arctic with this white landscape and it's minus 40 and you're <laughs> you're going after them on helicopters and you're looking at how climate change and heavy metals are this incredibly high-tech science with classic adventure 
exploration. And then you have your hands on a polar bear right before it wakes up and goes off with 20th century technology on its neck and a collar. You realize you're probably never going to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, or working in Alaska with, with Kodiak bears on a glacier and looking at how climate change is affecting salmon. And we can see that through these bears or discovering a new species of a frog in, um, in Asia or, or so many. I mean, I know, Chris, you're, you're down there in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It was always interesting. I never had a great, great, and, and forgive me all New Zealanders, I never <laughs> had a great interest in going to New Zealand mm-hmm. until I finally went there. And then I had that New Zealand Kiwi experience, literally mm-hmm. with the Rothschild Kiwi, where there's only 300 surviving, mm-hmm. where we got to go out and look for them and, and assess them and take data from them. I remember holding a Rothschild kiwi as the top kiwi biologist in the world is examining it to make sure it's healthy. And you realize probably not a lot of people on earth are doing this today yeah. or working with tuataras. Yeah. I remember re- relocating a tuatara nest. And for those who don't know, these are these cool ancient lizard-like reptiles that are very akin to dinosaur in their physiology. The dinosaurs, that's about the spenodons. That's about when they would have come to be. And and working to, I forget the name of the island, maybe it was at Fraser Island, something yeah, like that so, yeah, pops yeah. out to me. Yeah, yeah. And we were we were either relocating the nest or assessing the nest. And, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, all the reptile things I've done, and I love reptiles. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, uh, two months of incubation for this nest. Well, uh, a tuatara's nest can incubate for more than two years, mm-hmm. which is so cool to me. Yeah. And there's just been so many interesting creatures over the years uh, even little things that may not may seem innocuous and uh, you know in the template of the moment they're very powerful so for wildlife nation we were just filming in washington state with the columbia basin pygmy rabbit mm-hmm. there's only mm-hmm. 300 left yeah. and half their population was wiped out by one fire and they will likely be extinct if something radical doesn't happen within the next five years. So to be able to have that powerful opportunity to tell that powerful story, those are things that really stick out to me. I, you know, on Wildlife Nation and, and watching your latest episode, and this is where a lot of where we, we want to drive the, drive the conversation is, is because you have been out there, you know, in New Zealand, in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, all around the world, you've seen these different biomes. And, and we try to tell these stories each week of all these species. But your latest episode on climate change really hit a nerve with me. Like, wow, you know, you were talking, it was the the Mendenhall Glacier, right? Up in Alaska. And yeah, so we were, that's this, yeah. this episode is just now out. And it was incredible. So basically, we're exploring the geoscience of a glacier. And, you know, the, the tragic irony of glaciers is we think of them as permanent, but now they're not permanent. These monoliths of ice that have been around for tens of millennia since the Pleistocene, many of them will be gone within our children's lifetimes and within our lifetimes, depending how old we live to. Mm-hmm. And Mendenhall Glacier, by the time my children, my two daughters are seniors and they're adulthood 
it will be reduced by 75 to 80%. There's a hotel they just built there. And by the time they finished the hotel, the view they wanted had melted away. So you, you sit for the view. It was literally the, this hotel was designed to look out there. But it's more than just losing it. What does it mean when you lose a glacier? Well, you're losing most of the world's fresh water, especially in this part of the world. And then what we do in that episode is we learn, well, how are they melting? And, and, and what's the uniqueness of climate change melt and how they're actually, it's not a one dimensional melt. It's not like melting from the surface. They're melting from all sides. And as they melt more, they melt faster and become more unstable. And because of that, we, you know, they get, it's, 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 it's millions of dollars of damage to cities and communities that wash away when the glaciers literally flush their water downstream. It can wipe out a whole group of salmon. It, it's changing the water chemistry yeah. that the salmon need to spawn. We were able to show that throughout this. So it begins on this incredible glacier and ends with tiny salmon and cutthroat and rainbow trout in a, in a remote stream. But all of those streams and rivers, their future will be determined by the health of the glacier above. And it doesn't, those, they will disappear. To me, what's always incredible, almost as humbling is you could go and you could take an Ansel Adams photograph and Ansel Adams, for those who don't know, was a celebrated photographer. And he has many amazing landscape photos, black and white from a century ago of glaciers. And you could not find the glaciers today based on those black and white photos, which is pretty shocking to me. Yeah. And so Jeff, seeing all this and really being hands-on out in the field uh, throughout your journey, do you think there's been more degradation of these wild spaces and of wildlife or is there more conservation? What's happening in 2022? Where are we at? So we're in a tough spot in 2022. We're just kind of in this negative environmental destruction feedback loop. And when you add up the impact today of climate change, habitat loss, pollution, environmental degradation, and endangered species, they all, they're not happening in a vacuum. They conspire with each other. You cut down a rainforest, you, you release that naturally sequestered carbon into the atmosphere, which becomes a greenhouse gas, which contributes to climate change. You cut down that rainforest, you make those animals available to the black market trade. You see how it's all interconnected. You take plastic waste, which we dump 10 million pounds of plastics into our oceans every year. So that is why 60 to 70% of every bird group along any coastline has plastic inside them. We have microplastics inside of us. So I, I wish I, I could say it was better, but it's not. I think there's hope. There's a lot of people that want to make it better. We have great examples of species that were pushed to the brink of extinction that have recovered like or are recovering from blackfoot ferret to um, to um, California condors. These are species that were considered extinct or on the verge of extinction, which now you can see in the wild. As a child, I did not see bald eagles. Outside every day, I can see a bald eagle where I live. That is remarkable. But 
the challenge we face is extreme. I just, we just did a show on coral reefs in the United States. So for example, I did not know that we now only have 2% of the coral reefs surviving off of Florida. Mm -hmm. And that is the only place where you can find coral reefs in North America. Mm -hmm. They no longer can reproduce in the wild. They have to create an artificial spawning event in, in a lab, Moat Marine Laboratory does that. And then they colonize them in captivity and then replant them with the hopes of this will someday recoup the reef. So the bad part is, is 98% is gone. The good part is, if there is a good part is there are people that are coming up with incredible technology and, and um, knowledge, which may work to make a difference to salvage these places. To me, the biggest lesson I've learned is that while you can almost in many ways go back and fix something when it's been damaged, that is far more costly in energy mm-hmm. and money and time and talent and sweat, blood and tears than it is to save it in the first place. Okay. So if you can, so for example, New Zealand, which has intact, beautiful, pristine forests, that's the key to New Zealand's mm-hmm. state of well-being is to have those forests. The same thing with the United States. If you go to Madagascar, where more than 90% of it is gone, it will take Herculean effort, efforts to recover that ecosystem, that habitat. Is, I mean, just, uh, and I think this is why, you know, like we're, we're having a fanboy or, or fangirl moments with you because it, it's, it, it's not so much the celebrity, it's the knowledge, it's, it's the experience that you've had, you know, we've been doing this podcast for four years and we're telling these stories and we're getting this picture of the world, but here you are traveling to all these places, seeing all these places. So as you continue to build your legacy, um, you know, what, what's your, what's your ultimate goal, you know, as, as you continue with wildlife nation and, and beyond, um, you know, from what you've seen the last 20 years, where, where do you see yourself in 20 years, but helping conservation efforts? Well, I don't know where I'll be in 20 years. I don't know where where I'll be in two years, (laughs) the way the the fickle nature and unforgiving world of television, Um, you know, hopefully based in our ratings and our incredible partnership with Mm -hmm. defenders of wildlife, wildlife nation Mm -hmm. is going to return to ABC for season two. And hopefully this will be a multi-season ride, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm six years from 60. So, um, and I've spent most of my life around the world. Um, I typically I'm eight months in the road pre COVID doing 20 to 30 countries a year for, for work, which I love, but I don't know where I'll be personally in 20 years. I, maybe I'll be teaching or running an NGO, but Uh, you know, my goal is really is a selfish one. And it's really as a father of two of a 13 year old and now an 18 year old in college and as to pass on to them a biologically rich and healthy planet. And I don't know if I will have been successful in that. And I know that there are species that I've documented that are extinct, which is, 
And I'm not talking document in black and white and an old dusty dodo <laughs> picture book and, 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 and the London Museum. I'm talking yeah. in, in high definition television. Mm-hmm. I can show you a species that once was and today isn't. I can also have been there for miracles. And I, I hesitate to use that word. But or I would say miraculous moments where species have been recovered and have been introduced. For example, I've had incredible adventures in New Zealand or in mm-hmm. South America or in Africa, where you've seen species show their resiliency, where you just give them the opportunity to thrive and they will thrive. Um, and, and for me, those are, are moments where you can sit back and say, these folks are a job well done, and I get to share their story. Something else that I'm so excited about, and I can look at the lens of my career over mm-hmm. almost 30 years of this career of TV, just on you know, 26, 27 years. So when it first began, it was a whole bunch of white guys telling stories of nature, or you know, and and my and and Typically, in, in an episode of Wildlife Nation, you're only going to see one reasonably good middle-aged white man, and that will be me. So 80% of our scientists and, and principal experts are people from all sorts of backgrounds, and, and 80% are women. And that, to me, is the most exciting thing for me to share with my daughters. Both of them have an interest in science that that look at these incredible scientists that I'm featuring that are doing groundbreaking save the planet stuff. And they're women which are exercising the most important power, which is the power of the planet. So, I mean, that to me is an exciting thing. We just did an episode where all our scientists were women and it was all about climate change and elephant seals and plastics and and saving the west coast and you know to me that was pretty awesome yes jeff i really want to dive into this new series the wildlife nation on on abc so i know it's supported by the defenders of wildlife i wonder if you could maybe touch on that organization and what their mission is and how our audience can check it out and how people can view past episodes or stream them, especially for our international audience. Sure. So it's a brand new series. Uh, it it has an interesting evolution backstory in that. So I, I touched on traveling quite frequently. So before COVID that year, I went to 26 countries. I think I covered nearly a million miles of travel and I was home for two months that year. <laughs> COVID happened. I was home for two years. I was, I went on a plane once. Wow. And then we just came out of all this ugly, divisive politics. And we now live in a world where there's alternative science, where you can reach into the, into the ether of the ethernet and and online and find, you can validate things that are simply not true when it comes to science where everyone can be right. You know, you can't always be right. Two plus two will always be four. So if you say it's five, you're wrong. Even if you found some extrapolation on the internet that says two plus two is five. Mm -hmm. And my goal, so during this, I realized that my life had changed dramatically, that 
I would not be getting on a plane anytime soon and be doing a story on rhinos in Africa, even though that story needs to be told. And not only if I could get there, the scientists that are working there, they, they're, 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 in, they're dormant. They're not doing the research. So I thought, well, what if I did a series that celebrated North America, that celebrated the wild places and the wild species that make North America so spectacular? Because in many ways, the United States, the U.S. through tearful mistakes and negligence and triumphs and discoveries has been the pioneer in global conservation. We invented the concept of a national park. It's where science became a real career in the natural sciences. Of course, many countries do that today, but the whole idea of using, having you know, whole departments of governments focused on species management and natural resources, this is a uniquely American idea that is now worldly shared. But I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to do a series that focused on the United States and North America, the incredible wildlife that live in our backyard and the challenges we face, but approach that in a, in a positive, empowering way of hope. But the, the, the roller coaster ride is on adventure and discovery and journey. And through that thread, we can get into really into the details and minutia of science and climate change and what causes an endangered species and why are fires today in the West different from fires a century ago and, and why is the reef disappearing off of Florida, but how can we fix that? So that's kind of the spirit of what Wildlife Nation is. And it's been really successful. And I think by taking that approach, for the United States and for North America, it was, I think, what you've spent two years cooped up in a pandemic, <laughs> feeling angry by listening to politics on this mm -hmm. polarizing vessel you have, whether it's television or social media. And then now it's like, let's just forget all that and have a bloody good time outside mm -hmm. in nature. Leave the Love politics it. outside and let's go discover, explore and save species. So in order to make this happen with, so ABC and Hearst loved the idea and based on my tenure with them, they were going to give me a chance to do this series, but I needed a partner to do that. And that's Defenders of Wildlife. And Defenders of Wildlife is this really scrappy, no-nonsense, historic 75-year-old NGO. That is the reason why wolves are in the American West. They partnered up with the interior and other NGOs to focus on this. They're constantly dealing with policy and advocacy to fight for our, our collective national natural heritage. And I felt that this could be a vehicle for, our, for the messages that we share together. And the, really the, the, the tenor of the series is not about being polarizing or you're right or you're wrong and I'm right or I'm wrong. It's really about let's come together. Let's find that balance. Let's take the road that brings everybody to the table of conservation. And it's, and I think for defenders, it's, it's a way to really get that next generation of scientists of conservationists excited and inspired to see you're actually seeing science applied and saving species. And that's what we do each week on Wildlife Nation. And we're very blessed to have um, 
Defenders as a partner to deliver these episodes. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Oh yeah. My dad's supported them my whole life. You know, I always saw with the mailers and, and way back in yeah. the day. So they're a great organization shooting wildlife nation. And then maybe, you know, in the past 20 years of your career, is there a day that stands out that just maybe it wasn't the best story to tell, but it just hits you in the gut and you're like, okay, I need to do more, you know, like, did you go and, and like you said, you've seen species that are now extinct. Uh, you know, do you, do you go somewhere in the world or, or in North America and go, you know, like the glacier episode and go, wow, I've got to do more. It really just, just drives you, you know, I don't know if you can tell any, tell our listeners, any of those stories, well, I think, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, there's an embarrassment of riches of stories just like yeah. that out there, where yeah. each episode, I wouldn't say it's a kick in the gut, but it really is a sense of urgency, like, oh my gosh. So we did this really cool story. I mentioned the species. And I only mentioned it because it's like something like if you said, hey, Jeff, we're going to send you, ha- you know. We're going to put you on a plane for six hours and then you're going to go on a six hour drive in the middle of nowhere. And it's going to be miserable weather in the, in the, these foothills and these deserts. And you're going to feature a tiny bunny. I'd be like, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> but then when you look at the story and what it's about, it becomes so compelling. And it is about this rabbit species that was once one of the most abundant rabbits in the Americas. And now because of one fire in this deadly rabbit virus that is now pioneering its way across North America, colonizing and wiping out rabbits, this little tiny bunny that's only adult this big, the tiniest bunny in the world, is on the verge of disappearing. And you realize that every living species has a place. No one species is greater than another for they're all significant. And in many ways, reflect some keystone presence or contribution to their ecosystem. So without this species of of little bunny, the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit, an incredible resource is denied for most of the predators out there, from birds to snakes Mm -hmm. to mammals. In this very austere prairie desert-like ecosystem on the other side of the Cascades, they, I did not know I did, were instrumental in reinfusing energy and nutrients by going down creating virals and bringing all that nitrogen up to the surface for which the plant life just depends upon so what happened to this rabbit 
Well, these fires came and the fires, literally one fire last year wiped out half the population. So you're going out with this team effort with zoos and universities and state and federal agencies, and they're going out and catching these rabbits, trying to breed them in captivity or actually in enclosures, in situ, in the wild. And then they're coming up with these state-of-the-art vaccines. And incredibly, there was not one anti-vaccine rabbit. They all took the vaccine. And Smart rabbits. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so... But you realize this is, I don't want to say it's an experiment, but it's a bold endeavor where it's kind of like, all right, we stuck our thumb in the hole and that didn't work. This cork did. So now this is our last effort to save the species. And I remember I was so exhausted when I showed up and I was, not that I was jaded, but I was tired and I was Mm -hmm. trying to wrap my head around the story. And I overheard one of the principal scientists say to another one saying, oh my gosh, they're really here and they're going to tell our story. And I almost broke down. I was like, I have a job to do. And and that was like my kick in the gut. So I was so, that story to me was as thrilling as being in Kodiak on a glacier, putting a satellite collar around a, a, a Kodiak bear sow. And or discovering a new species that to me was this moment like we were there to tell the tale and maybe next season we'll tell where that tale goes, either good or bad. Or even like places where like if you've watched Ocean Mysteries, we had a chance to go to all the world's oceans and look at corals. Well, that series now is 16 years old or or maybe a little less than that. And I remember being recently on a place that I was there that I remembered as a spectacular, magical diving experience. And we were diving there and I said to this marine biologist, I'm like, man, where are we? I thought you were gonna take me to that beautiful place we loved. And he went, you're here, it's gone. It's just gray, coral bleaching, climate change. And I thought this story has to be told. But more importantly, this is what we need to do to fix it. And I think the whole urgency today is it is not too late. And while there is great loss and challenge when it comes to conserving our heritage that is wild, there is great glimmers of success and hope to inspire us to move forward. So there is not hope, but arguably, actually, I believe firmly, we are the less, we are probably the last generation to determine what the quality of nature will be for the next generations to come well into the future. We will determine what coral reefs are like in Australia. We will determine how much of the Amazon survives and the species that live in the most biologically richest ecosystem on the planet. This will be for us to decide. So what will that decision be? Amen. Amen. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, after listening to the story about the rabbits and of course the coral ones always uh, pretty, pretty up front in my view, because I live here in Florida, it's just, I have goosebumps. These are high, low moments and everything in between. And uh, your stories are just really incredible. And I'm so happy that we get to share them today. And I hope that our listeners will, check out Wildlife Nation on ABC to be
be a part of it. The the visual footage that you have uh, right. from the episodes that I've watched are just impeccable, and they inspire me to want to get out in nature and to want to support science and scientists. And so, as you move forward, thinking of your younger fans and your audience, what advice do you have for listeners that want to help conserve wildlife in these wild places? What can they do to help? Well. Angie, that's a great question. I think that the my I think the advice I would tell anyone is to begin in your backyard. So you're in Florida. What region of Florida are you in? I'm in North Central in uh, Gainesville, where the University of Florida is. Okay, so I just did a really cool story on gopher tortoises in Florida. We have them. Yes. Not in my backyard, but in the woods near my house. And you could have them in your backyard. I mean, I I mean, that's, they really are one of North America's most incredible reptile species. They're also in a lot of peril. So I would say, look to your backyard, wherever you even, you know, people say, well, I live in the Midwest. Well, you can find an incredible story in tiger beetles or birds of prey, or maybe there's a, a, an estuary or river or a, uh, an ecosystem that is in trouble. So begin in your backyard and focus in on how you can take your personal skills and talents. You know, maybe you're a great baker. Well, you, you know, do a bake sale, make a difference. Maybe you're a great accountant or you're good with numbers. Well, I guarantee you any NGO to keep their 501c3 status needs to make sure their numbers are popping. Mm-hmm. So maybe they need someone to help do their taxes. Whatever you can do, you don't have to be a, a herpetologist specializing in gopher tortoises to protect them. You could work with local organizations. You can become a docent. Now, if you want to be above that or not above that and, and doing more, but be the next step up, is that would be a professional. So, of course, you would need to have the pedigree of going to a university or college and getting a degree in the biological sciences or environmental studies, and then working wherever you can to get that experience to then go to graduate school. And really, if you want to have a career where you are working in natural resource management, you would need to go to a university that meets your educational needs and interests, and then get some level of graduate school today that is really, you don't have to be a PhD and write a book, but you, you know, even if you want to be, you know, you want to work as a a naturalist in a museum, they want that experience, that education, and get lots of field experience. But the great thing is, if it's what you love, you're literally exercising the muscles of the things you love. So, you're making yourself to be the very best you can be in that area that is your passion that you care about the most. So it's really about beginning in your community. Though my life experience and the work I get to do is based on the foundation of life experiences of my childhood and the people I met along the way to get me here. And I live three miles from where I grew up the wildlife center that I was one of the first volunteers for back in 1983-84, I still work with today, 40, you know, 30 something years later. And I get to feature them on my show. So it's about those relationships. It's about investing. And I say that because a lot of people are like, 
oh my gosh, the tigers are disappearing. And yes, they are. And what mm-hmm. are we going to do about the rhinos are in trouble? And they sure are. But worry, you need to worry about your coral reefs. Or if you're mm-hmm. in New Zealand, you need to be worried about, you know, the weka and yes. making sure its beaches <laughs> are clean. And the weka to make sure its life is clean, good. And the kaka, all the akas and wekas <laughs> yeah, and ekas. They're all down here. They need, those animals are, are surviving today because, because Kiwi, the people ones, mm-hmm. have stepped up and have helped. That's why those animals and those species are having a fighting chance. Florida has opportunities to thrive today because of what people in Florida are doing and then engaging with other partners. So you're, if you, don't worry about your dirty neighbor's house when your backyard's a pigsty. So clean up your own backyard and make that pristine and then let that allow you to step onto other challenges or passions in nature. That's yeah, that's amazing advice. And I'm getting chills listening to you and, and, and you're right. You know, it all starts local and then go out from there. I, 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 I mean, you were telling that story about the pygmy rabbit and, and that's, that's a powerful long trip, tired. I get it. We've all been there, you know, and, and, and you're like, Oh, but you listen to those scientists. I mean, we call them conservation heroes. Like they are just, they really inspire me. They inspire me to do what I do each week uh, with Angie and and just, you know, do our podcast and, and talk to people around the world. Uh, my question is, you inspire so many, millions. I mean, millions, without a doubt. You've inspired millions of people around I'm the world. I'm raising my hand over here. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Watching you back, you know, decades. I never thought I'd be talking to you on Zoom. Yet I can't inspire my own children to clean their room. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's just how it works. But they're amazing anyways. Yes, yes. Who inspires Jeff Corwin? So I had many folks. So when I was a little kid and living in Quincy, Massachusetts, we lived in what we call a triple deca, just a mm-hmm. very humble house, an apartment building, vinyl siding next to another one in a neighborhood where you probably didn't want to live in. And my dad worked 70, 80 hours a week. My mom worked all the time putting herself through nursing school. And, um, you know, I remember on the tiny little black and white seat at television, I would watch David Attenborough specials. Mm -hmm. And and then when I was old enough to get books, I'd I'd get their books. And so that was kind of my gateway into nature. And George Page with the Nature Series and PBS Mm -hmm. um, was a huge inspiration to me. Jane Goodall, and I had a chance as a very young man before I had my career to connect with E.O. Wilson, and he inspired me. And then I had a chance to, I was, you know, I just remember thinking, you know, E.O. Wilson had just died recently. And E.O. Wilson is, was to me an incredible hero. And, and I have this incredible memory of like, spending his 90th birthday with him, with me, E.O. Wilson, myself, along with my daughter and a whole bunch of little kids looking for insects. And I thought, what an incredible journey for this kid who grew up in this inner city place to have a dream of someday meeting this person and then to have a moment with him or to work with Jane Goodall. And um, I had a chance to narrate 
So I remember I never thought I would meet or, or work with or be a part of someone like David Attenborough. And I remember my agent called me up and said, do you know who this David Attenborough is? I'm like, David Attenborough? He goes, well, they want you to narrate a film for him. I was like, and I'm like, it doesn't pay that much. I'm like, I'll do it for free. I mean, <laughs> right. I want to yeah. do it. Um, I mean, those people. And then as I began to study the history, and I love history. I, I'm a, a real history buff. It's why I live in New England and live in a very old little island community. I love maritime history. But people like um, Aldo Leopold, John Muir, these people that had this vast undiscovered North American wilderness and, and to have that sense of foresight to look at this vast wilderness and say, you know what, based on the, the, the behavior of this small group of people in the East, this will go away if we don't create something called a national park, if we don't recognize the value of wild treasure as legacy and culture. Um, Rachel Carson, if you look at People, you know, people think, oh, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, what a great contribution. Her career was almost destroyed by, by the chemical industry because of the, her book, Silent Spring, and what she proposed was happening to our birds and wild species because of chemicals, because of modern agriculture. We have bald eagles today because of her. Mm -hmm. So people like that were huge inspirations yeah. to me. That's awesome. Wow, that's that's incredible, David Attenborough, and man, you you have Peter Wilson, yeah, yes, yes, uh, you yeah. you, and I, or people, yeah, people. Um, I mean, I just you know, someone like Eo Wilson. People don't realize what his contribution. You know, he created the whole modern the OEB organismic evolutionary biology movement, <laughs> and his passion for insects is this little Midwestern kid really created a revolution mm -hmm. with his ideas. Um, and, you know, within one week, all these um, amazing icons of conservation passed, which was, you know, it, it, which what it's powerful, their contribution that they made, but, you know, it's only once in a lifetime. If you get someone like these, these pioneers mm -hmm. that made, made such a difference. Yeah. Well, yeah. And in, in my time as a, a zookeeper, I got to do a lot of zoo education talks. And in my mind, when I was talking with little children, second, third, fourth grade, uh, that didn't really know much about animals. So they were happy to see either a cow milking demonstration or pet a bunny. Uh, I always thought to myself, you never know which one of these little kids could be the next Jane Goodall or the next Jeff Corwin, or the next David Attenborough. And so I just want to applaud you for all the education you've done throughout the years. It's inspiring. I have goosebumps thinking about it. And your movement is so important as a conservationist, as a wildlife defender, as a naturalist, to tell these stories in North America that are happening in real time. And so I encourage all of our listeners to check out Wildlife Nation on ABC. Uh, it's an amazing show. And the stories Jeff and his team are telling 
really need to be told and they're really important and it's an engaging show. It's number one and it's time block on the weekends. So thank you, ABC. Thank you, Wildlife Defenders. Thank you, Jeff Corwin, of course, for chatting with us today and being an inspiration, being a conservation hero, a rock star in my book, for sure. Uh, I have one more really important question, though. Now, Jeff, how do I come on an adventure with you? Chris and I, uh, you know what? I'll even, I'll even elbow Chris out of there so I can get yes. on the line. You have to come to New Zealand, but yeah, he's, he's you. You tell me a place, a time, and I am, I am there. Well, I think you have to. You, if you're doing something amazing with animals, I'll be there to tell that story. It was interesting. I gave a speech re- recently, and someone said, "Well, you're going to do something on the ivory woodpecker," and I'm like, "Well, if I could find one," I said, "I tell you what, you find an ivory woodpecker." <laughs> maybe in Arkansas, wherever, and I'll be there yep. in a heartbeat to tell that story. I'd want to be the first. Awesome. Well, challenge accepted. Well, so I'll, I'll you- tell you what, when we get the Kakapo back on the mainland, because uh, I, I know before we aired, I, I, I told you about Sanctuary Mountain. That, that I don't even know if yeah. I'm allowed to say this, but that might be one spot where they come back to the mainland because it's predator proof. Uh, we'll, we'll go look for Kakapo. So <laughs> I the love way. the cockapo. Yes. That's a cool critter. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, thank you, Jeff. Angie. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. And I really hope our listeners check out Wildlife Nation on ABC. We'll put the link in our show notes um, and also Defenders of Wildlife as well. So it's it's been an amazing time. And Jeff, I, w- I will continue the ride watching the episodes and cheering you on and cheering North America on the scientists, the animals and conservation in general, because because we definitely need to all come together in order to help save these species. Well, thank you guys very much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, take care. It was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.